How far would you go to save the life of your child? That's the story of this movie, uh, Extraordinary uh, Measures. It's a movie about 15 years old now, but it's a story, it's a true story of a guy by the name of John Crowley. His youngest children, Megan and Patrick, uh, were diagnosed with this rare neuromuscular disease called Pompe disease. It was considered a death sentence at the time. But this guy gave up his entire life to chase a cure for his children. Wall Street Journal says this. It says, seeking a treatment, Mr. Crowley quit his job as a financial consultant, met with legions of scientists, and teamed up with just one. He borrowed $100,000 on his home and his 401k plan to start a biotech company. He raised $27 million in venture capital, and when the company actually developed an enzyme that showed early promise... Uh, when he thought he needed the muscle of a big company to actually get the drug made and put it into production, he sold his company, Genzyme Corp, uh, to Genzyme Corp for $137 million. So there's more to the story, though. Mr. Crowley, right, he needed this medication for his children. And after he found it, having saved their lives, he started a new mission to find new medication for other children that had rare diseases. Let me ask you a question. What would you do to save the life of your child. Today we're going to find out what happens when you desperately need a miracle and how Jesus will meet you there. We're continuing our series. If you've got your notes, crack them out. I'd love for you to follow along here this morning. This series is called Signs of the King, and it talks about the seven very specific miracles that John tells in his Gospels. John calls them signs as to who Jesus is. And so we're going to pick up this morning right after where Glenn told us last week about where Jesus had turned water into wine. Now, water into wine is a nice miracle and all, but it really seems a little bit like a party trick to me, doesn't it to you? I mean, water into wine is a little bit like, hey, the guacamole's looking a little brown, Jesus, could you do something about that? Or, hey, Jesus, the 49ers really need a miracle right now. Could you give Patrick Mahomes an injury? Just a little one. We know he seems like a nice guy, but just maybe pull a hamstring or something. Too soon? Too soon? I mean, don't get me wrong. Jesus changes the molecular structure of a liquid. It goes from two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen to a fine wine that's, you know, been aged to perfection, right? But today, we're going to see a miracle that needs something a little bigger, And there's more at stake. And so let's pick up the story here as we take a look at the second sign in the book of John. It says here in the scriptures, I just want to paint the setting for you here. After the wedding, he went to a place called where? Capernaum. Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went where? to Jerusalem. Now, I think of things visually, and so I want to paint this as a giant road trip. Shotgun, I called it, okay? Here's the road trip, but I want you to get a visualization of this, because Jesus and the boys are traveling right after this wedding to a place called Capernaum. He goes from Cana down here, where the water was turned into wine, in John chapter 2, and then it travels up to Capernaum, which is right there on the Sea of Galilee, right? It's a nice little place there. Uh, It's about an 18-mile journey. Remember that, 18 miles. Everybody say 18 miles. It's 18 miles. That's going to be important a little bit later. So I want you to see that. So they travel up to Capernaum, right? And from there, they travel all the way down to Jerusalem. Take a look at this. 
all the way down here to Jerusalem. And you see, this is a map of all the miracles. There's a lot of miracles that happen in that Jerusalem area there. And Jesus begins doing more and more miracles as he gets to this Passover celebration, right? There's a buzz about this guy, Jesus, this traveling rabbi who's doing some amazing, unexplained stuff, right? And it says just a few verses later, it's not in your notes there, but it says because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. Uh, so Jesus' following is growing. His notoriety is growing at this point, right? When someone says Jesus, people know who you're talking about. It's a little bit like when somebody becomes a household name. Do you remember there was a time where somebody said the name Elon and you were like, Elon who? You're like, who's that guy, right? But then suddenly this guy who's founding companies and doing all these things, suddenly everybody knows the world's richest man, Elon Musk. You just say Elon and everybody knows who you're talking about. It feels like that's what's happening with Jesus, right? When they say Jesus, they go, oh, Jesus, right? So Jesus and the boys are on the move again. And this time they're headed from Jerusalem to Samaria. They are headed back up through Samaria towards his home region, and they stop in Samaria. Now, most of you know this. They stop in a little town by the name of Sikar, right, where he meets a Samaritan woman who is drawing water at midday. And you know this story, right? Uh, she's basically, Jesus engages her, has a conversation with her, talks about her five ex-husbands and the living boyfriend she has now. But this is happening in Samaria, now, as a Jew, you, you didn't engage with people in Samaria, right? You go around, even, if you can, in Samaria. You don't talk to these people, but he does. And he has this conversation with this woman who believes that Jesus is who he says he was. And, and she starts telling everyone in her little village about this Jesus. She's telling anybody who will listen. She's telling people who won't listen. And she's talking about Jesus. And this town is a buzz, And they're... they're overwhelmed by this Jewish rabbi who, who told this woman at the well everything she did, and they beg him to stay. And so he stays for a couple of days, right? And, and they saw these signs, and he stays for two days, but now it's time for Jesus to go again, and he's going through his hometown. Listen to what it says in the scriptures here. At the end of the two days, Jesus went on to where? Galilee, which is where he was from. He himself had said that a prophet is not honored in his own what? He's not honored in his hometown, yet the Galileans this time welcomed him, for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, and they had seen what? They seen everything that he had done there. They were beginning to believe, right? They were beginning to know that this Jesus is who he says he was. And so this is where we're going to see this second sign in the book of John. And, and John tells us this very specific story, and it happens in a very familiar place because Jesus continues on through Samaria right back to Cana. So, get the picture. He is back in Cana, right where he did this miracle of water into wine, after a big, giant road trip, right? And so these miracles that began in Cana, right? Uh, 750 bottles of wine created with Jesus stirring his finger in a, in a water basin. And, and they probably haven't even drank all 750 bottles at this point, right? And we're back in Cana, and we're going to get to this story. And really, this morning, I'm just telling you a story. Here's the story. Ready? It starts with a father's desperate request for help. A desperate request for help. 
In John chapter 4, we'll start in verse 46. It says this, as he traveled through Galilee, he came to Cana, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a who? This is important. A government official in nearby Capernaum. Does that sound familiar? Because Jesus has been in Capernaum. Whose son was what? Very six. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and what did he do? He begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to what? Heal his son who was about to die. Any parents in the room here today? I want you to put yourself in this story. This guy has heard about Jesus. He, he's heard about the miracles that are going on. And he's heard the rumors. And, and probably he's even met some people that probably have met Jesus or known Jesus. Because Jesus was in Capernaum like not that long ago. And he's had enough, heard enough to think maybe this guy can help me. Maybe this guy who did the miracles down in Jerusalem. Maybe this guy who turned the water into wine just in Canaan 18 miles away. Maybe he can help me. Maybe he can help my son. Now this guy is a royal official of Herod. And as I was studying this week, I came to find out that this royal official of Herod would have probably been like a cabinet member of our president, something along those lines, right? A member of the president's cabinet, the the secretary of, of state or the secretary of the interior. This guy is connected and powerful, but today he's just a desperate father whose son is sick and dying. He's so desperate that he walked 18 miles. He walked 18 miles from Capernaum. Now, for those of you who are doing the math at home, an 18-mile walk is like walking from here to almost Elk Grove. It's like walking from here past Stockton all the way down to French Camp. It's like walking from here all the way to almost to Rio Vista, to the bridge at Rio Vista. That's a long walk, amen? You guys walked 18 miles recently? I haven't walked 18 miles, and people see me walking all around town all the time. I haven't walked 18 miles. So he walks this really long walk. Get this, it is a 700-foot elevation gain to go from Capernaum to Cana. He is walking uphill the whole way. Okay? Uphill the whole way. He's walking 18 miles because he's desperate. And this is not a guy who's used to being desperate. This is not a guy who's used to going looking for something. He's got what he needs. He has everything he needs. In fact, anything he wants, this guy has brought to him. He is powerful, right? But today he's walking because he's desperate. Let me ask you a simple question this morning. Have you ever been that desperate? Because I remember so clearly the day that I slid down the wall at a hospital as they wheeled my pregnant wife into emergency surgery with our first kid. I was desperate. I remember so clearly when we found out that one of our daughters was struggling and had begun cutting herself as we gathered up the knives and the scissors and the things in our house that couldn't be around anymore. And I was desperate to God. I remember when my wife was sliding into depression and I was so helpless to fix it for her and I was desperate before God. You ever felt that way? 
You ever been desperate like that? Because when you are desperate, it is natural. It is so natural to lay your desperate needs before God. Lay your desperate needs before God. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, so let us come how? Boldly. Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his what? Mercy. And we will find what else? Grace to help us when we need it the most. It is so natural to lay your desperate needs before God. You know, it got me sort of thinking about other places in Scripture. There are two other fathers who came to Jesus pretty desperate. And, and I just want to tell you their story, these two other fathers who came before uh, Jesus desperate. In Mark chapter 9, there's a story of a father with a son who has epileptic seizures, right? He's been possessed by a demon. The scriptures say that these seizures would often throw him into the fire, right? And he takes his boy to Jesus and he says, have mercy on us. Help us if you can. Jesus responds back with, if I can? What do you mean, if I can? He says, anything is possible if a person believes. And the father says, one of my favorite verses in scripture, he says, I do believe, but help me overcome my what? Help me overcome my unbelief. And Jesus replies again, he looks at the boy and he says, I command you to come out of this child and to never enter him again. And this boy violently convulses one more time and he slumps to the ground in a lifeless heap on the ground. And I can't help but wonder, what did that desperate father think when that happened? Jesus says, come out of him. And he convulses again like he always had. And this time he falls to the ground and stops moving. Do you think that father had great faith at that moment? Or do you think he thought, see, even Jesus can't help him? But he would be healed, and that boy would get up, never to be tormented by the demon again. In Matthew chapter 8, there's another story. Um, it's a Roman centurion this time. This is a Roman official in our story, but this is a Roman centurion. He comes to Jesus, and he says, my child is sick at home. And he lies in bed, the scripture says, lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain. Now, different translations talk about this differently. Some of them call it a young servant. Some of them call it just a child. Um, either way, it doesn't really matter to me because this man traveled a long distance to get to Jesus on behalf of this young child, right? So if he wasn't the father, he was definitely like a father to this child or you wouldn't travel that distance. Right? And so he shows up and he says, Jesus, I need, I've got this child that is sick and paralyzed and lying in bed and in terrible pain. And Jesus says to this Roman centurion, let's go. And this Roman centurion says back to Jesus, he says, listen, Jesus, you don't have to actually come. I'm a centurion. I give orders and men do what I tell them to do. All you have to do is say the word. And this child will be healed. And Jesus is blown away. And he says, are you kidding me? He says, get a load of this guy. He says, I haven't seen faith like this anywhere in Israel. And so Jesus says to this centurion, go back home. 
because you what? Because you believed, it has happened. And the young servant was healed when? That same hour. It's the same request as this government official, only this time it's just done by a soldier, a centurion. He's got men under his command, but this is a government official. This is a member of the president's cabinet. And it makes me think to myself, where is our faith when we're in those moments where we are desperate? Where's your faith in those moments when you're desperate? How is your faith in that moment? Let me ask you a question. Is it possible that your faith is lacking a bit? That's okay. Help me with my unbelief. Help me with my unbelief. Is your faith strong like the centurion? Jesus says, I will meet you there as well. Jesus will step into both those situations. See, this official's son has been sick. It's an ongoing illness. Anybody ever had a child who's had a fever and that fever keeps going up instead of going down? And you've had a fever that gets to a number that makes you very uncomfortable. And you start to think to yourself, should we go to the hospital? Do we go to the hospital? What's the number that makes us terrified for the life of our child? Because this is the worst fear of every parent. This is the worst fear of every parent. I don't know a parent that wouldn't trade their life for their child. I don't know anybody that wouldn't do that. God, take me, not them. And Jesus has this very strange reply in the middle of this. And, and I can't just gloss over it, so I want to talk about it for just a second. He gives this warning against a contingent faith. Against a faith that's contingent on something else. In the middle of this story, Jesus says this in John chapter 4, verse 48. He says this. Jesus asked, will you never believe in me unless you see what? And what else? Will you never believe in me if you don't see the miracle? Will you never believe in me if you don't see the signs and the wonders? I mean, I mean I'm thinking, whoa, 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 Jesus, man. This guy, that, that is a pretty rough response to a guy whose kid is dying. Now listen, you can read this however you want. I'm going to tell you how I read it, and I'm going to give you some reasons for the reason that I read it. Because I don't think Jesus is actually talking to the Father here. I think he's talking to the crowd. There's a couple of reasons why I think that, right? Everyone, uh, there's a bunch of people there. They're in Cana. This is the place where the water into wine miracle had happened. This is the place where Jesus' fame and notoriety is coming up, and they're beginning to notice him more and more. And so they are pressed in around this government official who would have had probably an entourage is asking this very publicly of Jesus and they're like yeah let's see it happen Jesus let's see it happen let's all go to Capernaum and see what happens right I don't think he's talking to the father I think he's talking to the crowd here's why the the verbs that are used in this line here the verbs for see and the verbs for believe I they are plural they're plural he's saying unless you all see Unless you all believe, in fact, you, the you that he's talking about in, in English, obviously you can be singular or plural, the you is plural in the original language too. So I think he's talking to this whole crowd, not to this desperate father. And he's saying, these miracles are not a show, folks. This is not a show. I didn't come here to give you a show. These are the signs of a king. 
a sign for a desperate father, but also for us. This is not a transactional faith. When you're in your most desperate moments and you are asking God to show up in that desperate moment, we cannot say, I will believe if you do what I want. I will believe if you rescue us. I will believe if you show us right now. You don't say, listen, God, I'll believe when. I'll believe when you do the thing that I asked you to do. I'll believe when you do what I desperately need, God. This is not a transactional faith. That's not how it works. But that's how we pray sometimes. God, I'll believe in you. I'll give my life to you. I'll start serving you. I'll go to church every week, God, if you just show up in this moment. How I need you to show up. How I want you to show up. In fact, this official gives Jesus the way he wants him to answer this miracle. He says, come with me to Capernaum. Come with me to Capernaum. This guy is not used to people saying no to him, right? He's used to giving orders. People are used to following his orders. This isn't a guy who begs. This is a guy who is begged all the time. And he's not begging. This time he's begging Jesus, right? Jesus, heal my boy. And I got to tell you, that's not how Jesus works. That's not how God works. He, he says, let's see your faith. Let me, let, me give, let me use this opportunity to grow your faith. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, it says, For we live by what? Believing and not by... We live by believing but not by seeing. But sometimes we pray the other way around. Listen, in your desperate moments, in your desperate need... The greatest goal in prayer is not to get what we want. The greatest goal in those desperate prayers is not to get what we want, but to connect with God. It's to connect with the God of the universe who will step into our pain when we're desperate. Listen, you can't corner God into doing what you want. Believe me, I've tried. You, you, we live in this tension. Will I believe God is still good even if I don't get what I want? Will I believe God is still good even if he answers my desperate prayer in another way than I asked? Let me give you one more desperate father who prayed a desperate prayer. Many of you know this story from the Old Testament. King David prayed a desperate father's prayer. In 2 Samuel 12, he prayed this prayer and he fasted and he begged God to save the life of his infant child, this sick infant child, but the child died anyway. I'll give you one better. Jesus himself would beg the Father, Father, if there's any way, would you take this cup of suffering from me? But not my will, but thy will be done. No matter how God answers our desperate prayers, or if he doesn't answer those desperate prayers, when we pray, we pray to connect with the God of the universe that we can just sit in his presence even in our darkest hours. And I think God knows what a desperate father's prayer is like. Because when Jesus was hanging from the cross, And he finally breathed his last and said, it is finished. The sky went dark, the earth shook, and the veil was torn in the Holy of Holies. 
And to me, that just feels like the broken heart of a desperate father. I think God understands. And then it happens. The miracle happens for Jesus, or for this man, actually. The second sign is a long-distance miracle. There's this long-distance miracle that happens in John chapter 4, verse 50. It says, the official pleaded, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. And then Jesus told him, what did he say? Go back home and your son will, your son will live. Now listen, um, he says, I don't need to go, which we saw in that other story with the Roman centurion, but you should go. It's time for you to go. Your boy is going to get better. And, and, and in 18 miles away, the fever, this dangerously high fever is breaking. And, and God, I, I think this is the point that I want you to understand, is God never looks down on a desperate prayer. God has never heard a distant prayer and thought, oh, I can't believe it. I don't think God has ever heard a desperate prayer and rolled his eyes. God hears desperate prayers and he cares. Jesus cares. But the question is, are you willing to walk to Cana? Are you willing to walk to Cana? 1 Peter 5, 7 tells us that Jesus cares, that God cares. Give all your worries and cares to God for he what? He cares about you. God cares about you in your desperate prayer. When was the last time you walked 18 miles? When was the last time you walked 18 miles? It's been a while, right? I haven't walked 18 miles, but some miracles involve some sweat equity. Your effort doesn't, here's the thing, your effort doesn't make them happen. Your effort doesn't make them happen. But your lack of effort can keep them from happening. I, I read this quote this week as I was preparing from uh, Dallas Willard from The Great Omission. And it says this, great is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. You can't earn it. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. You can't earn a miracle. You can't earn a miracle. Miracles come from God. But effort is part of the equation. And you may, you may not need to hike 18 miles uphill, but your effort may be the catalyst for a miracle. Now, there are some who might think, Steve, I think you're wrong about that. It's not about your effort. Well, I would say, respectfully, ask the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years that pushes through the crowd to get as close as she can to just touch the hem of Jesus' robe. Well, effort doesn't have anything to do with a miracle. Okay, well, tell that to the four guys who heaved their paralyzed friend up onto the roof of somebody else's house, cut a hole in the roof of somebody else's house, and lowered him down to Jesus. They didn't earn those miracles, but their effort was involved. And ask the father of a sick boy who walked 18 miles uphill to find Jesus. And the question becomes, are we willing to walk to Cana? Are we willing to do our part to see God in our desperation? And so I want you to listen to this, this response of faith. He responds in faith, this, this government official. And it says this, and the man believed what Jesus said. And what did he do? It says he started home. While the man was on his way, some of his servants met with him with the news that his son was what? Alive and well. And he asked them when the boy had begun to get better. And they replied, when? 
Yesterday afternoon at what time? One o'clock. That's going to be important in just a little bit. And it says his fever suddenly disappeared. Then the father realized that this was the what? The very time Jesus had told them, your son will live. And he and his what? He and his entire household believed in Jesus. And this was the second miraculous, what does he call it? He calls it a sign Jesus did in Galilee after coming to Judea. So I want us to look at this a little bit because I am trying to get myself in the head of this man. Because I'm not positive, I can't prove it, but this is my take on it. I'm not sure that he has great faith. I think he has just enough faith. And I'll tell you why in just a second. I'm not sure this guy has great faith, but I think he has just enough faith. Because I believe that the walk from Cana back to Capernaum, where his son was dying, was probably the longest walk of his whole life. Would you agree? He was probably walking the whole way, worrying and wondering. If, if he wasn't, if he had great faith, I will give it to him in heaven. And I'm just saying I wouldn't have had that kind of faith. I would have been worrying and wondering the whole time. I would be hoping, is it possible? It's true. I mean, this is Jesus. Everybody's heard what he can do, right? But, but I would also be thinking, am I going to be disappointed? Am I going to be planning a funeral when I get back home to Capernaum? I mean, does this guy keep begging Jesus? No, he, he really doesn't. It says he... He, he left. It, not that we see. We don't see him begging Jesus. But I can imagine he's thinking, this is not how I pictured it was going to go. I pictured Jesus was going to come with me. I was going to have 18 miles of walking alongside this rabbi and this teacher and this man who could do miracles. And I would be comforted by him. And I would walk every step along the way learning from him and interacting with him. But instead he's walking this really long road all alone without any answers. Have you ever been there? Here's why I'm not sure he had that kind of great faith. Get this. He didn't go straight home. He didn't go straight home. Um, He meets up with his servants. It says in the scripture there. It says when he met with his servants, they answered yesterday afternoon at 1 p.m. So let's do the math on this, folks. Uh, Your kid is sick, and Jesus says, go home and your son will live. And he says that at 1 p.m. on this day. Let me ask you a question. Would you go straight home? Would you go straight home if your son was about to die and Jesus has said, go home? Would you go straight home? Anybody? I would go straight home. That would be my MO. That's what I would do, right? Now, I did the math on this. At three miles an hour walking speed, you can walk 18 miles from Cana to Capernaum in about six hours. Now, this is a high-ranking Roman official. I'm not sure he was walking on foot. You know what I'm talking about? He probably was on hoof. He probably had some transportation. But hypothetically, even if he was walking, you could walk from Cana to Capernaum, in theory, in six hours flat. That's enough time to stop at AM, PM and get some good stuff. You know, get a big gulp on the way. You could hit the bathroom on the way there. And you could still get there by, in six hours, right? That puts you home at 7 PM. Okay, let me paint this the way that we can understand. If your kid had a fever of 105 degrees and they told you you have got to get him to the specialty children's hospital in Los Angeles, 
Let me ask you a question. Would you get on the freeway in your car and set your cruise control at 65? No. None of us would, right? We would not do that. Not at all. Would you stop every time somebody in the back said, Daddy, I got to pee? You wouldn't stop, would you? Would you be content sitting in the fast lane behind a 2009 green Toyota Prius with a little sticker in the back that says, cool Prius said no one ever. Would you just hover behind them? Or would you pass that guy and refrain from giving them a high, you know, never mind. Let me ask you a question. Would you be weaving and speeding? Would you, be, would you take the speeding ticket and keep on speeding? How many people would do that? How many people know you can drive from L, uh, Lodi to LA in about six hours? How many people could make it in five? How many people could make it in four and change? Right? As soon as, the GP, uh, as soon as that GPS says ETA, I say, yeah, right. That's what's happening. So the question is, why did this guy wait to go home? Why did he wait to go home? He probably had to finish. I don't know. We don't know, actually. He, he may have had more high-ranking official business to do in Cana, right? Maybe the sun was going down by 6 p.m., and he thought to himself, well, it'll get dark, and it's dangerous on the road after dark. I don't know. If my kid was sick, I don't think I'd wait. And then, as he does go home, right, in the morning... And he sees these servants of his approaching down the road. I imagine him seeing these servants, his servants, down the road. And when they make eye contact and they recognize who they are, the servants begin to run towards him. And unmistakably, in a father's heart, you would go, this is good news. Nobody runs to tell me that my son is dead. And they run up to this desperate father, right? And they say, your son is well. And this father's response is, when? And they look at him like, what? He says, when? When did he get well? Exactly when did he get well? And they look at each other and they say, I, I, it was, I mean, it was after lunch? I don't know, maybe like, I, it was like one o'clock in the afternoon. And this official looks down at his watch. They didn't have watches then. He looks at the sundial or something. And he says, one o'clock. And he just begins to smile. Which leads me to... So what, Steve? What do we do with this story? What do we do with this sign? Because this is a Hollywood ending, right? Tested well with audiences. The, the boy gets healed and, and Jesus becomes more famous and the whole family believes. And you got to imagine that a high-ranking Roman official family made a lot of different converts in his circles, right? But as I thought about who would be sitting here today, I think my question became who here, and even if it's just for one person, I am A-okay with that, if you are desperate today. Actually, or if you've ever been desperate, and remember that. Or, if you're going to be desperate, that's everybody, right? Do I got everybody? Right? If you're on the long walk right now between asking for a miracle and an answer from God, 
I have some scripture for you. John 16, promises us, here on earth, you will have many what? And you're going to have many trials and sorrows. You will be desperate. I guarantee it. But Hebrews chapter 13 promises this. I will never what? Fail you. And I will never what? Listen, I'm going to apologize in advance for this video I'm going to show. But it's the most desperate story that I've heard in a while. And football's over for a while, so I'm going to give you one last football story. Take a look at this. Many of you know Trent Dilfer as a Super Bowl winning quarterback with the Baltimore Ravens and now football analyst with ESPN. But you don't know him as a dad and a husband. I want to introduce to you my friend Trent Dilfer. This is his story. In 2003, my son Trevin uh, was five and a half at the time. We were at Disneyland for a family vacation. And uh, we went down to Disneyland doing the Disneyland thing, and he gets a cold. You have four kids, kids get sick, it's never fun, but you kind of develop a rhythm for when they're going to bounce back. And uh, he wasn't bouncing back. Uh, even on the ride home, you know, we couldn't cheer him up. He got real listless, real, like, had no energy, and his skin color was different. So we take him to the emergency room, and they weren't real worried. They did some blood work, and they, they gave him a bunch of fluids, and, you know, they said he was dehydrated, and, and maybe they were going to look at him overnight because there were some possible signs in the blood work of some hepatitis possibilities and but it was like one of those okay everything's fine I mean nobody was panicked so I was to go home and uh, and be with the other three girls it's not I mean I'm not home for five minutes I get this call that hey uh, on the way to the hospital your son's heart stopped I run in and, and the, the first thing I remember seeing is a team of doctors um, all hovering over my son and, you know, trying to resuscitate him. Shortly thereafter, Dr. Rush said, oh, great news. We had one nurse that was able to keep his heart pumping enough for us to put this ECMO unit on him, which is a heart-lung bypass machine. Over the next, I want to say, six to eight hours it became but he can't stay on this unit here he has to be transported all the medical transport units for this machine are in Iraq because we just started the war he can go to Stanford he can go to the University of Michigan but we can't get him to either My great friend drove us in the Suburban behind the ambulance, and it was the worst two-and-a-half-hour drive in the history of the world because every bump you went over, we weren't sure if he made it. And now he's in ICU. He's on this heart-lung bypass machine. Uh, We set up what they called Camp Trevin, uh, at Lucille Packard, and with so many people that just loved us, they basically just stopped their lives. I mean, that's where I am. 
So many people laid down their lives, um, in a sense, to love on us and to care for us in this time. And, and uh, he was on this machine for 40 days at Stanford. moments of my life is when we found out that we had to take Trevin off life support. We are staying in this little back room, these cots at Lucille Packard. We went back there, we prayed together, and she goes, can you leave me alone for a little bit? And I said, sure, and I walked out. I've never heard a, a, a scream of more pain than I heard from her. It was like through two walls into another room, and she was crying out to God. I was so amazed that she had the maturity to be willing to scream out to God. It's horrific, and I, I'm not here to say it's not, but What's equally awesome is that we have a God that um, volunteered that for his son on our behalf. I mean, people say, why would you believe in this Jesus? Like, come on. And, and I, the cynics, and I, I get it. And I simply say, you have no idea. I've experienced a peace during the greatest time of loss any parent could ever have that is so real. I mean, truly, I feel like it washes over me at times. Every parent's worst nightmare, right? And buried there between the winemaking in Cana and the government official is John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him might not perish. God did that for us. And so my real so what is this. How do we walk alongside people like Trent? How do we walk alongside people that are in their worst hours, that are desperate, and they are in the middle of that long walk? And here's what I've come up with. Because when people are desperate, what they want to know is that someone cares. And we've been assured that Jesus cares. And they want to know people will go to Jesus with them. They, they, when people are desperate, they want to know someone cares and will go to Jesus with them. Man, this week has been brutal. Some of the stories I've heard and some of the prayers that I've prayed this week for people that are facing cancer diagnoses that are out of the blue. 
I, I, I've had conversations with multiple people whose marriages are absolutely on the brink. Without a miracle, they will end. And they are desperate in those moments. And what I have to offer them is not only me as just this person who will say, I will stand with you, I will sit with you, I will weep with you, I will cry with you, I will pray with you. But let me bring God into this. We see in Psalm 46, 1, it says this. God is our what? He's our refuge. And what else? Our strength. And he is what? Sometimes ready? No, always ready to help in times of trouble. God never shrinks from that. I listened to a podcast a a couple of weeks ago, and the host made this point that they have done uh, studies that show when a friend is struggling or in need, all they need is eight minutes. All they need is eight minutes from a friend who will hold space with them to help them feel better. And so he said it this way, so now we have a code, a code word for when one of us is struggling. And here it is. Do you have eight minutes to talk? And I would add to pray. This podcast host, I don't know where his faith is at. I don't have any idea. But what he left out is that eight minutes to talk to someone who is desperate, to sit with them, to feel that desperation in God's presence I don't know how people walk away from that with any hope if they don't have a God in the universe they can go to and pray to together. And when I say that, I say that we are not going to twist God's arm. We're not necessarily going to get the answer that we want. But you will get what you need from God, which is that peace that Trent talked about that washes over you in the worst moments of your life. And this is my so what for me is I want to be the kind of person that when I am desperate and struggling, I don't shrink away from sending a text that says, hey, do you have eight minutes to talk? I don't want to shoulder it on my own. And I desperately want to be the kind of person that is receiving those texts and responds 2 a.m., middle of the night, whatever it takes If you're here today and you're desperate, let me tell you about a Jesus who cares about you and wants to step into your pain. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, this is such a hard story because it is such a long walk when you have gotten desperate news and you need an answer. Father God, I pray that as Jesus followers, as disciples of your son, Jesus Christ, that we would do what he did, which is to step into people's pain and to say, I will walk alongside you on this very long walk. I will pray alongside you on this very long walk. I will beg God for a miracle. I will beg God for his presence I will beg God for his peace until we hear from God. Father God, may we be the kind of people that when we pray desperately and when people pray desperately near us, we lean in to your son Jesus. And it's in his powerful name we pray. Amen.